0: I don't think it's as easy as just saying you should have contracted for protection and since you didn't, it's your fault. I think that blinks reality in various ways.
1: This is Episode 8 of the Business Divorce Roundtable, and you've just heard a taste of my recent conversation with Professor Douglas Mall on the topic of LLCs and minority oppression. Hi, I'm Peter Mahler, business divorce lawyer and partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. If you ask people in the know to name the leading authorities in the U.S. on shareholder oppression, fiduciary duty, and fair value appraisal involving closely held business entities, I have no doubt one of the names that will come back at or near the top of the list belongs to Doug Maul, a brilliant young professor of law at the University of Houston Law Center. I was first introduced to Doug some years ago through his articles on shareholder oppression, And since then, I've had the pleasure of being on panels with him at Bar Association meetings. And in 2009, I did an online interview of Doug on my New York Business Divorce blog. In 2005, as the limited liability company was already starting to overtake in popularity the traditional close corporation, Doug published a remarkable law review article on minority oppression and the LLC, in which he argued that the lessons of the close corporation and remedies for minority shareholder oppression should apply equally to minority members of LLCs. This past summer. The Business Law Prof blog posted a short piece by Doug on the same topic, which provided a perfect excuse for me to invite Doug onto this podcast to talk about minority oppression in the LLC. Let me tell you a little more about Doug before we start the interview. He's a UVA and Harvard Law grad, Harvard Law Review He did a clerkship on the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals and then practiced commercial litigation in Houston for a couple of years until 1997, when he joined the faculty at the University of Houston Law Center. He teaches a number of business law courses, he's co-author of a treatise on closely held corporations and three casebooks on business law, and he's written numerous law review articles, mainly on oppression doctrine and fiduciary duty, which you can find on SSRN. After you listen to the interview, I think you'll agree with me, and I'll wager every student who studied with him that Doug's a powerful thinker and terrific teacher with a deep understanding of both the legal and practical challenges that can arise in business partnerships under the various statutory regimens. Without further ado, here's my interview with Doug Moll. I hope you enjoy it. Doug, thanks for joining me on the Business Divorce Roundtable. Oh, thanks. I appreciate uh, you inviting me. Doug, I've been a fan of yours for many, many years. I remember first reading your pieces on shareholder oppression in the closely held corporation, and then I started noticing as the LLC grew in popularity that you... Not you didn't leave behind shareholder oppression, but you also were now focusing on oppression in the context of limited liability companies. I was so happy when I saw your recent post on the Business Law Prof blog entitled Minority Oppression on the LLC. It reminded me that you had written on this subject about 11 years ago in uh, the Wake Forest Law Review on that subject in a very lengthy and scholarly article, emphasizing that As you put it, the seeds of oppression are also present in the LLC. Your blog post is really a condensed version, a very condensed version of your article from years before, and you reference what I think of as a formula, and I'll I'll, I'll cite it as majority control plus no exit equals oppression. Your assignment is to please explain.
0: Sure. Well, first of all, let me let me pay a compliment to you, Peter, that um, I think you came to my attention years ago because you used to write and perhaps you still do. Forgive me, I'm not a New York lawyer, but you would publish this roundup of oppression cases in like the New York Bar Journal or something like that. And at any rate, I remember becoming familiar with the things that you were doing. So believe me, uh, I'm happy to be here and I thank you for inviting me. So sure, let's let's talk about why that I think that is a formula for oppression. Oppression is a doctrine doctrine that developed in the closely held corporation context and it developed there because in effect if you are a minority shareholder in a closely held corporation by definition you don't have control which means that you cannot outvote the majority shareholder or the majority shareholder group when it makes decisions at the board level or at the shareholder level and of course, there's nothing wrong with majority rule. Majority rule is, is how, you know, lots of groups operate. There's nothing per se wrong with that. The problem is that when you couple that with the inability to exit a business organization, now you have a recipe for if the majority wants to abuse its control and wants to target a minority shareholder as the, as the focus of that abuse, there literally is no way to stop it. You can't outvote it and then you can't use the market to escape
1: it. When you say no exit, and I know at the moment we're talking in general about closely held business entities, are you talking about some legal impediment to someone selling or, or signing their shares or interest or talking about restrictions that may be found in, a, in an agreement among the owners or both? well that's a good
0: point i mean when i when i use the the term no exit what i'm referring to is first when we're talking about closely held businesses by definition when we call them closely held it it means that there is no established market for the ownership interests of that business entity so for example unlike you know apple a publicly traded corporation where if you want to sell out of Apple, you know, hop on your computer or call a stockbroker, you can take care of it in 60 seconds. In a closely held business, there is no comparable market. In order to sell, you would have to work hard at trying to find a buyer, and that may be incredibly difficult. Quickly putting aside the absence of a market, We might not care so much about a market if there was some statutory rights to have the business entity buy your ownership interest out whenever you demand it. But no state law, to my knowledge, provides for that kind of default statutory buyout right in either the corporation or the LLC. And finally, let me just add, we might not care about that. If you as a minority owner could dissolve the corporation because dissolution is another way of you getting your capital out of the business. But again, no state statute that I'm aware of in the corporation or the LLC area allows a minority by itself to dissolve. And so sort of taken, taken together, all of that is what I mean by there is no exit.
1: So so let's set the stage just a little bit more before we really take the, a deeper dive into LLC and, and oppression. Typical oppression scenarios, what are they? So
0: I would say the prototype oppression scenario is is colloquially referred to as a freeze-out. And I like to define a freeze-out As when the majority, and again, this could be a single shareholder, could be a group of shareholders, but it's when the majority denies the minority participatory rights in the business and financial rights in the business. So the classic oppression pattern, the classic freeze out, is you deny the minority participatory rights, which means the minority might have had a director position and you vote that uh, director off of the board. The minority might have had an officer position. You terminate the minority's employment, which usually goes hand in hand with removing that shareholder from an officer position. And so now the minority shareholder has been denied any participatory rights in the business. They no longer have a say in management because they're not a director. They're not an officer. Then you go to work on the financial rights. And so you've already terminated their employment, which means they're no longer drawing a salary in many closely held businesses for... Sometimes legitimate and sometimes illegitimate reasons, dividends are not being paid. And so if you're really trying to engage in a freeze out, you make sure that dividends aren't being paid and you make sure that you as the majority can still get money out of the company, either through employment or perhaps through some uh, related party arrangement that you have with some other venture that you control, etc. But the common pattern is you work on denying both participatory rights and financial rights.
1: So, Doug, am I correct that in the last half of the 20th century, if not sooner, most of the states came up with a remedy for the oppressed minority shareholder by permitting them to petition for judicial dissolution?
0: Yes. So so if we're talking about the corporation, depending on how you count, something along the lines of 38 or 39 states, precisely as you mentioned, Peter, have a dissolution statute, that allows a minority shareholder to come into court and to ask the judge to dissolve the corporation on the grounds of, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, but most of the statutes are worded either exactly like this or pretty close, but they, the minority shareholder can ask the court to dissolve the company on the grounds of oppressive conduct by directors or those in control. And I should just mention, we may get into this later, but most jurisdictions have construed that statutory authority to order dissolution as statutory authority to award less drastic remedies than dissolution. For example, a buyout is a very popular remedy uh, for oppressive majority conduct.
1: And and states like New York have that by statute. Right. So a
0: number of states like New York have um, a statutory provision that allows a majority shareholder, um, if a minority shareholder was to bring a dissolution petition on the grounds of oppression, the majority can circumvent that petition by electing to buy out the minority at fair value. And then the dispute simply becomes a valuation battle versus an oppression battle. I should mention, though, even in jurisdictions without election statutes, some of those statutes explicitly provide for less drastic remedies like a buyout, but many states just, uh, the courts have construed as part of their equitable authority the right to order a buyout. The logic seems to be if the legislature gave us the power to kill a corporation by dissolving it, then surely we have the power to do something less drastic if that would solve the oppression problem that that uh, triggered this petition in the first place.
1: All right, so let's let's shift to LLCs now. Now, when I when I started practicing law in the '80s, New York had no LLC. I personally had never heard of an LLC. I know the history is that I think what was it Wyoming was the first to have an LLC law in the late 70s, but the LLC as, as a form of business entity didn't really take off into, I'd say, what, the late 80s or early 90s? Does that sound right? I might even say the late 90s. I mean, mm-hmm. most
0: people will point to 1997 when the check the box regulations came out from the IRS as really the fuse, so to speak, that, that, that lit the LLC craze.
1: Right. And I've heard others refer to it as the LLC revolution. I know it's had a tremendous impact on my work, which primarily these days involves uh, LLCs. The percentage of new companies that are being formed that are LLCs has gone through the roof in most states. We started our conversation talking about that majority control plus no exit formula. What effect did the check the box regimen have on exit rights in LLCs?
0: Well, that's a great question. So, so prior to 1997, in, in what I might call the first iteration of LLC statutes, there was a different game that one had to play if you wanted to increase your ability to receive pass-through tax treatment. Without getting into the nuances of it, it was called the corporate resemblance test, and the idea was you had to make your LLC not look like a corporation. And of course, one of the attributes of a corporation is continuity of life. And so if you wanted to avoid looking like a corporation, you needed to have provisions in your statute that would allow the LLC to not have continuity of life. In other words, it would not live forever. It would dissolve upon certain events, like for example, the the death of the manager of an LLC or perhaps bankruptcy of the LLC. So the first iteration of LLC statutes had what I might refer to as exit rights. There were statutes that provided for dissolution upon certain relatively common events. There were buyout rights if you as an LLC owner simply wanted to leave the LLC. And a lot of those provisions were designed to make the LLC not look like a corporation, not have that same permanence of a corporation. And it was believed that the LLC statutes had to do that in order to ensure that they would get the pass-through tax treatment. In other words, in order to ensure that they would avoid the double tax. Well, once 1997 came and the check-the-box regulations kicked in, and there was no longer any uncertainty as to whether the LLC would receive pass-through tax treatment, and again, pass-through tax treatment is what you want, it's, it's not the double tax, then there was no longer any reason for those dissolution and buyout provisions from an income tax standpoint. And so a number of jurisdictions got rid of those provisions. And our more modern LLC statute today in most jurisdictions does not have any easy exit rights as the LLC statute in that jurisdiction may have had 10 or 15 or 20 years earlier.
1: Well, New York was certainly in that group. Uh, I do recall that in 1998 or 9, it amended one of the few amendments that New York has made to its LLC law, and it uh, flipped the default rule on withdrawal rights. In other words, before check the box the default rule was that a member could withdraw even without the the consent of the other members on six months notice and then be paid the fair value for his or her membership interest. and right. then, And then the statute was flipped. And the default rule now is that you have no right to withdraw unless it's so it's provided in the operating agreement so that was a typical legislative change across the country i gather
0: yeah and and on that point it absolutely was typical in other words i would tell you that most llc statutes have followed that pattern where to the extent they had buyout or exit rights in the past, they have almost all gone by the wayside. There are maybe a handful of states left that still have sort of a buyout right, but but I'm when I say handful, I mean maybe five or six states.
1: So let's talk about statutory remedies for minority oppression in the LLC. Before check the box, am I right that in most states there was no oppression remedy per se Anyway, in the LLC statutes, in other words, neither in the dissolution provisions of these statutes or anywhere else did it provide any recourse for a minority LLC member claiming oppression. But I gather from your last answer that given the default withdrawal rights, maybe there was not such a great need for that remedy. Now you have checked the box. LLC acts are almost universally, if not universally, amended to, as I called it, flip the default rule on withdrawal. But the states did not recognize a greater need now for a remedy for minority LLC member oppression.
0: I think that's fair. I mean, the story is a little more complicated, but only because... In the typical evolution of most business organizations is that we get a uniform statute out in front and then states typically look at that uniform statute and will adopt it either wholesale or maybe make a few changes. What's interesting about the LLC is that states got out in front of uniform statutes. And so the first iteration of LLC statutes I'm quoting, I can't remember where I saw this quote, but someone wrote that it had a dizzying variety of statutes. And so what happened was the first uniform statute, I can't quite remember when the prototype statute came out. The prototype may have been first. But the first nicusal statute, and nicusal drafts any uh, statute that you've heard of that starts with uniform or revised uniform, Um, The first McCusill statute that came out was in the 95-96 area, and it did contain a dissolution for oppression provision. But by that point, most states had already adopted their own version of LLC legislation. And so I think I agree with you, Peter. Uh, uh, When states flipped the default rule, as you said, many of them at that point had not adopted the uniform statute. And so Unless they had given some forethought to what that would cause, which I would suggest many states did not, there wasn't a dissolution for oppression section. And it stayed like that until states started to adopt uniform statutes, but that took another 10 or so years.
1: In New York, for instance, the statute from its enactment in 1994 only provides a dissolution remedy uh, based upon a showing that it's no longer reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the operating agreement. And And I believe that was pretty typical of most state llc acts in the in you know adopted in the 80s or 90s that not reasonably practicable standard is not the language is not particularly friendly to someone alleging oppression is it
0: well that's a good point i mean it certainly is more attenuate right i mean the language says you can ask for dissolution on the grounds that it's not reasonably practicable to carry on the business in conformity with the operating agreement well think about your normal freeze out If you get terminated from employment and removed as a manager, there's nothing in the operating agreement usually that somehow disables the LLC from functioning just because it lost a single manager or a single employee. Similarly, if you stop making distributions to the members, unless the operating agreement has some requirement for distributions, which is very rare. I'm not sure I've ever seen a requirement to make distributions. It's hard to say that the classic freeze out would run afoul of a statute that's you know. It's hard to it's hard to it's hard to imagine that a freeze out would be uh, make it not reasonably practicable for the LLC to act in conformity with its operating agreement.
1: Has there been change across the country in the formulation of the dissolution remedies to? include oppression as one of its grounds in the last you know 20 years or so or i guess i should really say since check the box
0: well i think it's fair to say that the answer to that question is yes um now i might when i wrote the wake forest article that you referred to early on peter That was in 2005. And at that time, I would say no more than a half a dozen states had an oppression statute. Those were probably the states that had adopted the first Uniform LLC Act, which did in fact include an oppression statute. Since that time, so now we're what, about 11 years later, that number, by my last count, had increased to 19 states. And I'm pretty sure that that uptick is due to the fact that the second iteration of the uniform LLC statute, which came out in 2006, also contained a dissolution for oppression statute. And states have continued to adopt those uniform statutes, which I think has led to that uptick. What's interesting, however, is that even though there's been an increase to, again, by my count, 19 states, in the corporate context, we're talking 38 or 39 states. So it's still quite a significant deviation from what we see in the corporation statutes.
1: So do you think that the, this uh, variance in the number of states that protect oppressed minority shareholders versus oppressed LLC members, is it just a historical accident based on the, some of the peculiarities in the way that the LLC evolved and, and the uh, tax issues that surrounded Check the Box? Or is there something more deliberate that you sense on the part of our state legislatures where they think it's somehow less appropriate in the LLC context to provide that kind of protection? Well,
0: sadly, it's hard to know. So my guess is it's probably a, um, well, let's put it this way. I have a few theories. My first theory is certainly what you mentioned, Peter, that the, the story of how LLC statutes evolved is a complicated one. And to the extent that a jurisdiction first looked to partnership statutes by analogy, partnership statutes didn't contain an oppression provision, and therefore their entire statute may have developed without one. Other states may have looked to the corporation for um, analogous provisions, and so their state uh, may have started with an oppression provision. So some of it I do think is due, as, as you mentioned, to the evolution of LLC statutes. Another theory that I'd like to suggest is in certain jurisdictions, oppression as a doctrine is criticized. Some of the criticism is fair. Some of it I think is unfair. But the idea is that the oppression doctrine is criticized as being too vague and too unpredictable without boring the listeners too much. Depending on the legal standard, various standards for oppression that jurisdictions have adopted include New York most famously adopted the frustration of the minority reasonable expectations test. Other jurisdictions use a test that oppression is conduct that is burdensome, harsh, and wrongful, a violation of fair dealing and fair play. And again, the only point I'm trying to make is if you just think about those standards, frustration of reasonable expectations, burdensome, harsh, and wrongful conduct. You know, that's got some vagueness in it. And perhaps there is some concern that the oppression doctrine is is too vague or too uncertain, and extending it into the LLC context might be seen if you think that it is too vague and uncertain as compounding the problem.
1: I can understand in those 11 states that don't have a minority shareholder oppression remedy for close corporations, I could imagine, I would not be surprised to learn that those states also do not have such a remedy for oppressed LLC members. But in the 39 states that have minority shareholder oppression remedies, for close corporations, what would be the argument in those states for distinguishing LLCs and not providing the same remedy for oppressed LLC members? Right.
0: Well, I think that is a great point. Keep in mind, let me just mention in the, in the 11, 12 states that don't have a statute, remember that many of them do have a fiduciary duty doctrine. So it's not, it's very possible that, that fiduciary duty doctrine they will extend into the LLC. And that sort of brings me back to your specific question, which is, is there something we can point to in the 38 or 39 states that have an oppression statute in the corporate context as to why they feel like they don't need it in the LLC setting? And let me suggest that that may be because of fiduciary duty doctrine in the LLC setting. And if I can take a moment just to explain that, a number of LLC statutes will state by statute that managers owe a fiduciary duty, not only to the LLC, but to the members themselves. And in a member-managed LLC, the statute will often state that members owe a fiduciary duty, not just to the LLC itself, but also to fellow members. Now, in the corporate context, most jurisdictions do not hold that directors and officers owe a fiduciary duty to an individual shareholder. They hold that directors and officers owe a fiduciary duty to the corporation, but not to an individual shareholder. So in the corporate context, if you're being harmed as a shareholder, there typically was not a breach of fiduciary duty action that you could bring because, in effect, you didn't have standing. The fiduciary duty didn't run to you. In the LLC setting, however, it may very well be that because the statutes are worded to say that a duty is owed to an individual member, then perhaps the typical freeze-out cases can now be handled via fiduciary duty action, because the duty does run to you individually and may, in some states, allow you to complain about individual harm.
1: It's interesting, because in my experience, the and understand I represent uh, majorities, I represent minorities in my in my business divorce practice, But I think there's a common perception, and certainly amongst lawyers, that these dissolution proceedings, regardless of the form of the entity, are brought with the ultimate goal in mind of a transaction of some sort, a buyout or division of assets or something like that. If you analyze this just in terms of the formal legal obligations and remedies that arise from claims based on breach of fiduciary duties, I guess what I'm raising as a question is whether it's really the case that the presence of remedies for breach of fiduciary duty really do suffice in taking the place of a, of a dissolution remedy based on oppression of LLC members?
0: Well, you make a fair point. And, and so we might bifurcate this into thinking about a liability theory and then remedies. And so the fact that there may be a fiduciary duty that runs to an individual member in an LLC gives a vehicle for liability, right? You can now bring a cause of action, presumably, for harm caused to you as a member. But that doesn't solve the remedies point, Peter, which you've just mentioned. In the oppression case law, there's 20, 25 years worth of case law providing for a buyout as a remedy for oppressive conduct. If we bring oppression lawsuits through the vehicle of fiduciary duty, you lose that line of precedent. And so now, as you indicated, you're, you're fighting about fiduciary duty. What's the typical remedy for fiduciary duties? Well, damages. And most jurisdictions will say equitable relief. But very few jurisdictions have case law on the books allowing a buyout as a remedy for breach of fiduciary duty. And so even though a fiduciary duty action may give you a liability hook, it's almost like we've wiped out 20 years of case law on the remedy side of the oppression world. And and if, if I can throw in one quick example, my home state, which is Texas, had an oppression doctrine for years in the corporation context, a Supreme Court case of approximately two years ago effectively gutted the doctrine. And so now the scuttlebutt here in Texas is that when minority shareholders feel like they're being treated unfairly, they're going to have to try to bring this as a breach of fiduciary duty action. And I'm just talking about the corporation right now, let alone the LLC. There's not clear law in Texas That makes it easy to bring a breach of fiduciary duty action as an individual shareholder. And there certainly is no authority in Texas providing for a buyout as a remedy for breach of fiduciary duty. So we've effectively wiped out 20 years of remedy law when it comes to oppression, and we're starting over in Texas, at least from a minority shareholder causes of action and rights to relief.
1: Doug, there's a almost philosophical strand that was championed, as I recall, most forcefully by the late uh, Professor Larry Ribstein, sure. that LLCs are different. They're intended to be different. They should be kept different, that they are at their core a contractarian concept, the, the idea that, you know, you make your bed by contract and now you lie in it. And if you haven't negotiated for exit rights, then too bad. Do you buy that argument? Well,
0: <laughs> Well, before I answer that question, let me back up for a second. So you are certainly right that if you ask someone about an oppression remedy, you're usually going to get one of two responses. One is, why do we need a doctrine like that? If you didn't contract for protection, then tough. And quite frankly, I think it's fair to say that is the Delaware view. Delaware, in a, in a well-known Delaware Supreme Court case called Nixon versus Blackwell, in the corporation area, that was one of the primary reasons they rejected the oppression doctrine in the corporate context. And it was, look, you can use the tools of contract to protect yourself. And if you don't, we're not going to come up with a special common law remedy. And so I think we can all assume that Delaware is going to have a similar response to the LLC. I don't anticipate seeing an oppression doctrine in Delaware either. Now, when it comes to LLCs. Now, do I buy that argument? Well, here's the problem. There's a lot of not only academic literature, but I think just, you know, real world behavior where I'm not so sure that contract necessarily solves everything. And just to give you some examples, a lot of these LLCs, as well as closely held corporations, are small businesses formed by family members and friends. And the idea that you can contract for protection with your family members and friends just like you would with an arm's length party, I think is wrong. You know, when you're when you're dealing with family members or friends, there is perhaps a greater sense that contractual protection isn't needed. You're not going to get abused by your family members or friends. Now, maybe we say tough luck. You still should have thought about it. But I guess I have some more sympathy for the idea that it's reasonable for people to have thought that they might not needed to have contract contracted for protection in that instance. A- another example: if you receive your ownership interest via gift or inheritance. Obviously, your ability to contract for protection wouldn't help you uh, in that particular situation. Another example, if you're going to contract for protection, presumably you want to do that at the outset of your venture. And let's face it, that usually means that you're going to have to get your own lawyer. So the minority is going to need a lawyer. The majority is going to need a lawyer. Perhaps every minority owner will need their own lawyer. That's really going to increase the amount of expense that is necessary to get a venture off the ground. Again, maybe we say it's justified. On the other hand, I'm just trying to suggest that I don't think it's as easy as just saying you should have contracted for protection, and since you didn't, it's your fault. I think that blinks reality in various
1: ways. So if you were a legislator in a state like New York, and the debate on the floor of the legislative chamber was whether New York should adopt a remedy for minority LLC member oppression. How would you vote?
0: Well, going back to a point you made earlier, Peter, to the extent that New York has a dissolution for oppression statute as well as an election statute, in the corporation context, it's sort of hard for me to understand why they're already comfortable with the oppression remedy. It's it's hard for me to understand why they wouldn't extend that same remedy and election framework to the LLC statute unless New York felt that it was clearer in the LLC context that fiduciary duties were owed to individual members, and if perhaps they thought that that was sufficient. Again, as you and I have discussed, I don't think that is sufficient. You're you're wiping out all of your remedy law that you've worked out since Kemp and Beatley and other New York cases. So I would vote to extend the oppression remedy to the LLC context. I would vote to extend the election statute to the LLC context. And then perhaps we could have an interesting debate on whether we would allow it to be a default rule where you could contract around the oppression remedy or whether we thought as a matter of public policy, we did not want to allow that. But that would be a different
1: debate. I think the public policy argument on the other side of it might be something like, and by the way, I know in New York there's almost no legislative history that attended the enactment of the LLC, New York's LLC law in this, certainly on this topic. But I suppose if one could recreate a legislative history and and attribute some rational thinking to the enactment of the statute as it was and and the absence of of a remedy for minority member oppression in the LLC, It might be something along the lines of we're enacting a law that on its, you know, by its literal terms requires the members to adopt a written operating agreement. That's what the New York law says. There's no teeth to the law. If they don't, if you don't adopt a written operating agreement, there's no consequence. You're deemed to be governed by this so-called statutory operating agreement. But still, I think the, the argument could have been made that we are making the LLC a different kind of creature than the... closely held business corporation, where there is no similar requirement that the owners enter into a shareholders agreement, and that by imposing this requirement of a written operating agreement, we expect the members of an LLC to sit down and bargain for all of these rights and protections, sort of the Delaware argument, you made your bed, now lie in it. But in reality, and I say this now as a practicing attorney for who for many, many years has dealt with so many different companies, uh, corporations, LLCs, partnerships, family-owned, non-family-owned, and have seen in so many instances, not only do they not enter into a comprehensive, sensible operating or shareholders agreement, they don't enter into any agreement. So the assumption that parties in the real world are going to sit down at the bargaining table and, uh, you know, hash out an agreement that gives everyone the protections they bargained for. I just don't think it's a good assumption.
0: Well, and let me just make two quick responses to that. Number one is think how expensive that's going to be. I mean, if you're going to sit down and negotiate this comprehensive agreement, that is really increasing the cost of forming a business, which again, maybe we say it's necessary, but, but, but just keep that in mind. The second thing I would say is, Just because you have a business structure that forces you to enter into some kind of agreement, even though, as you mentioned, there's no penalty for it, doesn't mean that you will actually lock horns with issues that affect how the majority might treat a minority. In other words, we might sit down and work through how we're going to call meetings and what vote's going to be required. Again, it may be that many people are overly optimistic when entering into a business you know, with friends, family members. They don't think anything bad is going to happen. They might choose not to focus on, gee, what happens if dissension arises between us? That's what oppression would want you to negotiate. But that's an awfully difficult conversation to have, not only because, again, it may be friends and family members who you don't think would ever do that to you, But even if you thought they would do that to you, you are basically saying at the outset of a business relationship where you want to preserve everyone's optimism, hey, let's talk about what happens if everything goes south. And that is a very tough conversation to have at the outset of a business relationship. And again, to me, just saying you should have contracted for protection is is too easy of a response and too easy of a justification for why we don't need an oppression.
1: I can't disagree with you on that. Uh, Doug, you wrote that Wake Forest article, which is just a, a really masterpiece of scholarship, and uh, particularly if you like footnotes. The um, just just kidding. That was published in 2005, and here we are, 11 years later. I mean, from my own perch the biggest difference is the explosion of LLCs as the as the entity of choice and and in the life cycle of businesses now i am seeing many many more LLC member disputes including dissolution proceedings what generalizations can you make about how things have changed or maybe not changed since the time you wrote that piece in 2005
0: well A couple generalizations. The first thing that I've seen since 2005 is, as I mentioned, we've gone from maybe half a dozen states with oppression statutes to more like 19 states, not nearly as many as in the corporate area but certainly growing and perhaps it will continue to grow. And I would expect that it would continue to grow as the revised uniform LLC statute continues to be adopted by jurisdictions. Another generalization that I think will be interesting to watch is whether we start getting a substantial amount of case law that is, articulated in the language of fiduciary duty. In other words, will we see oppression cases effectively get repackaged as breach of fiduciary duty to an individual member? And if we start seeing those cases and we start developing remedies in those cases, it may be that oppression simply gets repackaged in the LLC context. That said, let me just mention that I indicated earlier that some LLC statutes say explicitly that fiduciary duties are owed to individual members. Some of those statutes, however, define that fiduciary duty only by way of harm to the corporation. So even though they nominally indicate that a duty is owed to an individual member, the duty itself is based on harm to the entity, which is not what you typically care about in an oppression lawsuit. In an oppression lawsuit, you're normally focusing on harm to the individual owner. So it will be interesting to see if fiduciary duty over the next several years winds up being what, you know, winds up doing the work that oppression used to do. And it will also be interesting to see if we get enough jurisdictions to adopt oppression where they won't have to shift into a fiduciary duty rubric to try to handle these cases.
1: Well, Doug, it's been fascinating talking with you on this very important subject. Doug, thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Peter. It was uh, a lot of fun and uh, I appreciate the invitation.
1: I hope you enjoyed my interview of Doug Maul and that you'll stay tuned for future episodes of the Business Divorce Roundtable. Even better, be sure not to miss future episodes by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes or your other favorite podcast manager. As always, you can monitor the latest developments in business divorce law by following my New York Business Divorce blog, where I post a new article every Monday. Till next time, this is Peter Mahler thanking you for listening to the Business Divorce Roundtable.